The title of our message today is Getting the Lord's Supper Right or Getting Communion Right. Communion is one of the most important things that we are told to do. In fact, there's only a couple of things that we are told to do on a regular basis. One of them is communion and the other one is gathering together. So today you're going to do both of those. You're not going to neglect the gathering of yourself together because you're here and you're going to take communion, which Jesus said to do often. Now, here's what I want to do. I want before we get into the text and I do want to get into the text quickly. Last night I elaborated on these and made them way too long. But tonight, this morning, I want to give you seven important things about communion. I want to give them to you so you can write them down. I want to give them to you so you can refer back to them. Uh, later on, if you go on YouTube, there will be timestamps in the study. It takes a little while to get the timestamps up, but within, by the end of the day, they'll be up. And you can go to the timestamps and you can actually look at where they are, make references if you just get caught up and you can't get them now. But I think it would be good for you, for, for me, to have these seven important things about communion that you can look at before you go, before you take communion. So you can just make sure you've got, you're, you're doing the right things, you're approaching it in the right way because this is very important. We're gonna get that sense by the time we get done with our study today. So here's the seven things. Number one, it is a memorial meal. Do this in remembrance of me. And it was built on a memorial meal of Passover where they did certain things in the Passover that represented their freedom from slavery in Egypt. And for 1,500 years before Christ, the Israelites kept the Passover. And we know that Jesus is our Passover lamb. It was representing him there in that memorial meal. So at a memorial meal, we are given another memorial meal. So we know when we take communion, we are to remember his death, his body broken, his blood shed for us that we could have salvation. Number two, it is a symbolic meal. It's not just a memorial meal, but it is symbolic. The bread represents something. The wine represents something. They, they gathered together at that memorial meal that was a symbolic meal, Passover, and this is symbolic. And here specifically, I'm going to talk about why we believe that the bread does not become the body of Christ nor the blood of Christ. The Catholic Church believes that. Uh, other churches besides the Catholic Church believes that. And if you're joining us this morning and you are Catholic, I want you to know we love you. We believe that you are part of the body of Christ. If you have made a commitment to Christ, if you have followed him, we believe if someone attends Calvary Chapel and doesn't receive Jesus as their savior, isn't born again, then we believe that they're, even though they go to Calvary Chapel, that they're not part of the family of God. We believe that the same about any church. If you are trusting in sacraments to be saved, then you need to be born again because sacraments cannot save you. But we are going to talk some in our study on why we believe that we don't believe in transubstantiation. That is that a priest is able to take the elements, give some kind of a blessing and literally turn them into the body and the blood of Jesus. We'll talk about why we don't believe that, not to tear down Catholics because we do love you, all right? We really do. But so that we can clarify what we believe and why there is that difference, okay? So this is a symbolic meal. The third is that it is a covenant cup. This is really important. It's a covenant. A lot of people don't know this about communion. A covenant is a promise. 
So Jesus shed his blood, making a promise to us. And we partake of that covenant of that promise when we take the cup and drink it. So we are doing our part in the promise when we take communion. This is why if you're not a Christian, don't take communion. If you're joining us here today, you don't have a relationship with Christ, then don't take communion because it is a covenant meal. The fourth is that the bread represents our bo his body that represents our body. Okay, now that's a little clunky. And I probably need to, to whittle that down some. And, and what I have written here is the bread is his body broken for us. It represents his body. He breaks it and it represents his atoning work for us. In other words, I should die. He took my place. This is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in my place. He died in your place. His death is sufficient for all people. Everyone in the world could be saved that has ever existed, could be saved by the blood and body of Christ. He died once for all. The, the fifth is that we are to examine ourselves when we take it. We need to look and see, am I right? Is there something that's wrong? It's a place where God recenters us about our relationship with him. And maybe this is why we're supposed to take communion often because we need to look. Sin is deceptive, the Bible tells us, and we are self-deceived at times. So somehow we need to honestly look into our hearts and as the psalmist prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A good, honest look. Lord, is there something I need to change? The sixth is that we don't take it in an unworthy manner. Take it in a worthy manner is what I have written down. It does no good to examine yourself and go, yeah, I got problems, but I'm not changing them. You need to make things right. And the beautiful thing about our Savior is that it can be done in a moment. You can do it here today. I, I, mean, I didn't talk to Troy exactly to what he's going to do at communion, but I imagine he'll give you some time just to be quiet and make things right. You can do it while I'm preaching, all right? You can multitask. You can listen to me preach and you can make things right with Jesus and that's okay if you need to. And a lot of times the self-examination doesn't take a long time because we know the Lord's been convicting us and dealing with us on something and we go, okay, I need to make this right today. And there will be those here who will be making things right with God today. The final is that we proclaim his death until he comes. When we take communion, there are always people here for the very first time taking communion or around the world in a day, all the people that take communion, there are some that have never taken communion before and they're learning about the substitutionary death of Christ. They're learning about the covenant cup. We are proclaiming the death of Jesus until he returns, which means that this goes on the whole time of the church. If Jesus doesn't return for 200 years, and every time I say that, people are like, that's never gonna happen. It's been 2000, who knows, right? Maybe, I think he's coming back soon. I think all the pieces are in place. But God's going to do what God's going to do. God's not going to be like, well, Robert thinks it's going to happen now. I might as well come back now since he thinks it's going to happen. He's got his time. And as long as the church is here, they will be taking communion and it will keep the sacrifice of Christ in the middle of the church, which is what it is supposed to do. We, we, are, we could get sidetracked. We could start thinking something else is important. We could start talking about something else. But you can't take communion without talking about the cross. 
And so it brings us back to the foot of the cross and we proclaim his death until he comes. So those are the seven things. Hopefully you were able to write them down. As I said, later on, you can come back and pick them up when you can pause it and write and pause it and write. All right. Uh, so let's pick up our text. Luke 22, uh, 14 through 23. This is Jesus giving communion. We want to see what we can learn from it. Then we want to read the other passage out of 1 Corinthians 11 that we learn about communion as well because we learn a couple more things as Paul tries to correct the Corinthian church because they're taking communion wrong. So he wants them to get it right. So in Luke 22, verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles were with him. So this memorial meal is a meal to be taken with other Christians. He sat down with the 12 apostles to have this first communion. It's the reason I like to take communion at the same time. I don't think there's a problem with someone putting a table up front, talking about communion, giving you a chance to pray. And when you feel like you want to get up and come and get communion, you can go back and take it. I don't think that's wrong. I just like to take it together because there's a special relationship that you and I have as children of God. The Bible says, do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. We are, we are to, to treat Christians one step above. We're to do good to everybody, but especially those of the household of faith. And it reminds us that, uh, reminds us that there is a special bond. Even if we don't know each other, there is a special bond that we have as Christians because we are, are both children of God. We are all children of God. Now, you remember... Jesus went through this elaborate thing. We talked about this last week where he tells Peter and John, go out. You're going to find a guy carrying water, follow him into a house, ask him where the master can have a Passover. And then he's going to take you to a room set up there. Now, why did he do that? If it was supernatural or if he prearranged it, it was because Judas was looking for a place to betray him. He wanted a place away from the crowds. That's what he was told by the, the religious leaders. Find a place apart from the crowds where we can arrest him. A Passover meal would have been the perfect place to do that. So he kept Judas in the dark about where it was. Later on, he would know he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, probably spend the night there. And that's where he goes apart from the crowds and gets Jesus. So they're not going to be disturbed while he sits down with his 12 and has Passover with them. In verse 15, it says, then he said to them, with a fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is not their first Passover together, but he wanted to eat this one with them before he suffered because the Passover, everything in it, and this was our Bible study last week, speaks of Jesus. We went over all the stuff in the Passover that speaks of Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. The lamb was to be without spot or wrinkle. Jesus was sinless. You had to bring the lamb into your house on the 10th of Nisan and have it there for four days before you slaughtered it. In other words, you had to have a relationship with the lamb and you have to have a relationship with the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You had to remove leaven from your house, which is sin. You have to remove sin from your life as you start that relationship with Christ. Uh, Jesus was killed. The Passover lamb had to be killed. Uh, it was roasted in fire, which would speak of judgment. They ate bitter herbs as a type of the bitterness of being freed from slavery. And when we enter into the new covenant, that is the, the blood of his covenant, we are freed from sin which is Jesus saw as slavery. He often talked about sin in that sense. I came to seek and save the lost and we've been set free from those. So he desires to have this Passover meal with them. But then he says this kind of strange cryptic thing in verse 16. For I say to you, 
I will no longer eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's going to eat this Passover and it looks like to me that he's saying, and I'm not going to have another Passover meal till I eat it with you in the kingdom of God. Now, if this is, and this is what I believe, I believe we will have a Passover meal with Christ. I, I think it from this passage. Now, some believe that Jesus ate a meal with the disciples the night he rose from the dead and that's the fulfillment of this. Some believe it's the marriage supper of the lamb. It doesn't really matter where we land, right? We can believe certain things as you look at that. There are certain things that we don't need to argue about that we can just go, you know what? I just, I think we're gonna have a Passover meal with them. I think, and what a great Passover meal to have the Passover lamb lead us in a Passover meal, showing us all of the things that the children of Israel did for 1500 years. They had the Passover meal, which spoke of Christ celebrating their freedom from slavery and Jesus is going to have a Passover meal with us or them in the kingdom of God. Again, a little bit cryptic, but I think it's pretty powerful. So then he took the cup. He gave thanks. Now, when we, when we pray for our food, one of the things that we should do is give thanks for it. And to be honest with you, I've always been a little confused on what the blessing does to the food. So when I pray, I, do, I say this. I say, Lord, thank you. For, for your provision of food. And Lord, I ask that you bless this food. Now, what does that do to the food? That's my, my question. Does it make it sanctified food now that I'm going to eat? Does it make it so if I'm eating something bad, I'm not going to get sick from it? What exactly? Which I know isn't true because I've gotten sick from food. I've gotten food poisoning before. So I'm not quite. Now, the Bible does say the food is sanctified by a blessing. So we certainly want to pray for it and want to ask God to bless it. I'm just going to confess to you. There are certain things I go, I don't know. But I do know we give thanks and I know why we give thanks. We should do that when we, when we uh, ask for our food to be blessed. So he, 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 he took it, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourself. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So now he's got a Passover meal and he's not going to drink wine until he comes again. Now, this is this particular cup. In the Passover meal, there were five cups. And I'm not going to take time to go over what all the cups represented, but they represented certain things. He did drink wine on the cross. Remember, they gave him, when they first put him on the cross, they gave him some, a mixture of what would be like an anesthesia, and he didn't take it. And then he said on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, when there was darkness that fell over the earth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cried out, I thirst. And they put some, a sponge on hyssop and they put sour wine on it and they put it up to his lips and he took a drink. So he's not saying, I'm not going to drink wine until the end. He's saying this particular cup, read it again, take this and divide it to yourselves for I say, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, some point out, that when he's sacrificed upon the cross, that's the initiation of the kingdom of God. And that perhaps drinking that wine on the cross was an initiation that the kingdom of God is here. It's in your midst now. I'm dying. I'm being sacrificed for it. And this is the beginning of the kingdom of God. When Jesus started his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So it was, it was getting ready to start. And some believe that that's the initiation of it. Now he gets into communion, verse 19. And he took the bread he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. That's the symbolic part of it. This is my body given for you. Now this part, this is my body 
is the biblical justification for transubstantiation. That's the doctrine that the, turns into the body of Christ. So do they believe that when Jesus said, this is my body, that the bread became his body when his body was right there? That's the first problem that I see with it. Secondly, he doesn't say, this is my body, literally. He doesn't say anything like that. And later on, he's going to say, this is my blood, the cup of the new covenant. And so they believe the blood turns into his blood and the bread turns into bread. This is, the Passover meal was symbolic completely. This is a symbolic meal. So I think that's the first point. The second point is that it would not be kosher. They could not eat blood. Last night I said they can't drink blood. I made them sound like vampires. They, they could not eat blood. And there would have been an objection from them had they understood, this is my blood, take it and drink it as them drinking the blood of Christ. They would have seen a problem. Let me give that to you. It is in Leviticus 7.14. It says, for it is in the life of all flesh, its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh is in the blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So in the law, it's pretty severe that they had to drain the blood. When if you're kosher, then you are eating an animal that has had its blood uh, drained from it. And then someone from Judaism has come over and blessed that animal. And now it is kosher. You can eat it but you couldn't drink blood. Now, if they understood this has become the blood of Christ and we are now drinking his literal blood, if they understood it that way, later on, Peter would not have been able to say this. You remember he's in Joppa and he has a dream. He's sleeping up on the roof and he has a dream and there's a sheet of unclean food that comes down. It had pepperoni pizza and cheeseburgers and shrimp. I don't know all the unclean food, but all those things are unclean, by the way. If you're kosher, you can't have a cheeseburger. You can't have pepperoni pizza. Um, and there's reasons for that, which we'll go into at some other point. Uh, but shrimp and other things were any. And, and God said to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said this. I have never let anything unclean come into my body. That's a pretty strong statement. It'll tell you that Peter was a pretty serious guy because there are a lot in Israel. There are a lot of kosher people. Most of the meals are kosher, but I'll tell you, they cheat. They go, I want a, I want a cheese, I want a ham sandwich. You know, they cheat. Peter says, I've never cheated. I have never let anything unkosher come into my body. Had he believed that it was the blood of Christ, that would have been a violation of that. Now, some point out, we're not under the law, so it's not a problem. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about them. When they were sitting at that table, if it became the blood of Christ, and this is what is so appalling about communion to the Jewish world, because they know being culture, you can't drink blood. And then they're saying that you are drinking the literal blood of Christ. I don't believe that. It is I believe it is symbolic. Now, if you believe that it literally gets turned into the blood and body of Christ, I don't know. I don't believe there's a problem with your salvation unless... You think that by taking the literal blood and literal body of Christ is your moment of salvation. And I have met Catholics that have thought this. You say to them, listen, you need to receive Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. And they say, I receive him every, every time I go to mass. And it's like, no, you need to actually 
be born again. Your spirit has to come to life. Now, I have another friend of mine who is part of the Swiss Guard, which is a, a Catholic thing. They're the ones that wear the feathers, I think. Am I right? I always hate when I say something later on, people go, you're wrong. But I think I'm right. I think it's the feathers thing. And, um, and he's a defense attorney. And he loves to argue. And I played racquetball with him for years. And um, loves to argue. And we get along really well. But I asked him point blank, do you think you're saved because you have taken the body and blood of Christ? And he says, no. I believe I'm saved because I believe in Christ. I trusted in him. And I'm like, amen, brother. I have no problem with that. If you believe, it's by the sacraments that you're saved. Now, the Catholic Church is changing a lot. They used to think that we were not saved at all because we didn't take the sacraments. Now they believe that all Christians are okay. They're just more okay. There's, there's, it's a change happening. You, if you're Catholic, you know that. You know there are changes taking place within the Catholic Church. But if you think you are saved by taking the sacrament, then you are no different than the Church of Christ who believes that you are saved when you're baptized or than the Seventh-day Adventists who believe you're saved when you go to church on Saturday or if you think it's works, that you're just adding works to it. So the Bible tells us we are uh, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we are saved by faith through grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a work of God, not a work that we can do. We call out upon his name. And so, um, as I said, if you are Catholic or one of the Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox or whatever, uh, that believes in that, we love you. We don't hate you. We're not down on you. We just are clarifying what we believe. And why would the Catholic Church believe that a priest, first of all, that there would be priests because the Bible doesn't have them. And why would they believe that a priest can bless this and turn it into the blood and body of Christ? Because it's not in the Bible. Because they take tradition, the traditions that have been handed down to them throughout generations, and they put them alongside of the Bible and at least give them the same authority. And that's what I try to tell my defense attorney friend, which again, he doesn't take it because he's a defense attorney and he's good at arguing. But I like to tell him, why should we even fight? Because I'm sola scriptura. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it's not, I don't. And a lot of stuff has been handed down through the church with tradition that's wrong. And he admitted that. Then, then you've got to make a decision. What's right and wrong? And what are you going to make a decision by if you don't use the Bible? If you don't use the word of God given by the inspiration of the spirit, how do you make a decision? And so I don't argue with someone who's Catholic because they believe tradition brings them these things. They believe the succession of priesthood comes from tradition. The Bible doesn't give it. They believe in praying to Mary comes from tradition. They believe in praying to saints. It comes from tradition. And so if you're going to make tradition as high as the Bible, then you're going to believe things that are different. That's why we believe differently. And it's okay for us to say, we're going to have our authority be the scripture. And it's okay for you to say, I'm going to use tradition as it, but be careful. Jesus said, you teach the traditions of men as if they are the commandments of God. He said that to the scribes and Pharisees. So it's possible to take the traditions of men and teach them as if they are the commandments of God. So I just have a warning for those of you who take tradition that way. Be careful that you don't do that, that you're not taking traditions of men and fitting them in. 
And um, you have your own walk with Christ. I understand that. But this is why we don't believe it turns into the body and blood of Jesus. Now, he goes on to say what the reason is. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance meal. It's a symbolic meal. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So this is the covenant. The covenant is a promise. Jesus shed his blood for this promise. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham to take the animals, cut them in half, and then Abraham knew what was going on. When they would take covenants in their day, we sign and have a, somebody who there who can certify when we're making a covenant with someone. I promise to pay for this house. You promise to sell me the house. Let's sign it and have it certified. In their day, they would cut animals apart. And it was kind of a sign of like, I think, this is how I would take it, that if you don't keep your end of this promise, this is what's going to happen to you. That's kind of what I think is happening there. You're seeing all the blood and it's like, we're making this covenant by blood. This is serious. And so Abraham cut the animals apart, but God didn't show up. And so Abraham fought off the vultures until he was so exhausted, he passed out. And when he passed out, the Bible says God showed up and God passed through the animals and made the Abrahamic covenant through the nation of Israel, all nations will be blessed. That is, God was going to bring the Messiah through Israel and all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. And God didn't need Abraham to keep any part of the covenant. So he didn't need Abraham to pass through. So the way we apply the blood of Christ to our lives is by receiving him as our savior. And we take the cup as a symbolic reminder that we have been forgiven by the shedding of his blood. And we have been forgiven by him taking our place on the cross, the substitutionary atonement. Now, let me read you the couple other places that talks about the, the, the cup. In Mark 24, 23 and 24, Jesus said, it says, then he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant. Again, the blood is connected to the new covenant, which is shed for many. Another place says that Jesus died for all. It's shed for everyone. The provision is there. Now, some people argue against that and say that Jesus only died for the elect. And um, that's proven by the fact that not everybody gets saved. But I don't think so. I think that if you're here today, you can choose to be saved because the provision is for everybody. Now, let's just say that I, I ordered some food trucks and I'm going to have lunch here for every. I didn't, in case you got a little like, ooh, food trucks. That I ordered food for everybody here in food trucks and they're going to be out in the parking lot afterwards and um, I paid for everybody. So you all can stop by and eat it. Now, <clears throat> I, I know none of you would pass up food from food trucks. All right, I know that. But some of you may go, I can't. I got things to do. We got stuff to do this afternoon. We're leaving. I got to catch a plane. So some of you would not do it. That doesn't mean the provision wasn't made for everybody. The provision was bought for everybody, but some people didn't partake of it. So Jesus died once and for all, and some people do not partake of that. Now, Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So his blood is shed. That's, that's the part of the cross. This is a very theological moment. That's the part of the cross by which our sins are forgiven. Were our sins forgiven when they nailed him to the cross, when he was scourged, when they put the crown of thorns on him? Our sins were forgiven when hanging on that cross, that blood fell to the ground. His blood was shed. 
Now, he had to die. It wasn't enough. <clears throat> they couldn't have taken him down from the cross and said, you shed your blood. Now, he had to die like the Passover lamb had to die and then smear the blood on the door. But it was for the remission of sins. Now, one more passage. The Corinthians, the early church, the Corinthian church was a mess. The first century church really was a mess. We have a bunch of corrective letters in the Bible. And when people tell me, uh, we want to be part of the first century church. Some churches name themselves that, the first century church. And I always think, they're messed up. The first century church was a mess. Things were just beginning. They didn't understand things. They didn't have, they didn't have all the years of clarification that you and I have. And so they were, missed, they were not taking communion properly in Corinth. They had a meal and everybody would get together. But some people came early and ate all the food. So they just showed up and they're like, woohoo. It's like the people early on in the potluck that take all the good stuff. They're piling on their plate. What are you doing? We wanted some of that. And then they were drinking the wine and getting drunk, Paul says. So they were drunk at communion. And Paul says, don't you understand how bad this is? They were not considering their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were not allowing them to partake of communion. It seems at the end of this passage, he kind of says something that makes us think he's kind of saying, stop doing it this way. Don't have meals for communion, but do it a different way. Um, and it did, it did change. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, uh, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night on which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says in verse 29, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. He's dealing with this whole issue of some of them getting drunk. You're, drink, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. This is why we say we want to take this in a worthy manner, because that's scary, that we are taking communion in an unworthy manner and eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. Then he says, for, because you're not discerning the Lord's body. So here he's specifically saying, don't take communion in a cavalier way. Don't take communion just like, oh, I'm just going to take communion here and I don't have things right with God, but I'm going to take it. Don't do that. It's serious. It's important. Examine yourself. Make sure that things are right. It goes on. And this is even more scary. It goes on to say, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Some were sick in Corinth and many had died. And I want to see, does it say many died? So, yeah, many sleep. Many had died because of the way that they were taking communion. He says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we examine ourselves and we judge ourselves, then we are not going to be judged. It's interesting in the Bible, Jesus said, don't judge others, but we're to judge ourselves. If you judge yourself, there's no reason for anyone else to judge you or for God even to judge you. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's pretty heavy. I don't want to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So if you're not saved, then don't take communion. Just set it aside. You've got it already, but set it aside. Or you could give your life to Christ. 
You could say, Lord, I want you in my life. And then you could take communion. You could take it as a point of saying, I'm believing in you. I'm receiving you. And I want to thank you for what you've done for me. You could give your life to Christ even as you take communion. And it could be very powerful. You're not taking it in an unworthy manner then. If you examine yourself and you find that you have sin, but you're not willing to repent from it, then don't take communion. That would be in an unworthy manner. And again, listen, we're not going to judge you. It's not what we're about. We want to make, we want to, we want to minister to you. We want to take communion together. You can make things right in a moment. There's not a person here who can't. You can make it right in a moment with him, but you got to make it right. You confess it and he's faithful to forgive you of your sins. And then he says, but let a man examine himself. So this is where we examine ourselves. And so let him eat the bread and drink the, uh, and drink of the cup. So we examine ourselves and then we take it. And it's good for us. And that's why I wanted to give you those seven important things so you could remind yourself before you take communion, this is what communion's about. I want to examine. I want to make it right. I want to make sure I've got these things together. Then verse 21, this is in our text again. He said, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me here at the table. And it seems like with this communion, there was a connection with the betrayer. Even Paul said that, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gave communion. So the connection between Judas, the betrayer and them, maybe it's because he's an outlier. He's there, but he's not really genuinely one of them. And so it's possible you're here and you're not really one of us. Become one of us. Don't be like Judas. Maybe that's why this betrayer comes up here and also in Corinthians. And then verse 22, and truly the son of man goes as it has been determined. God had determined that Israel was going to reject him. God knew that they would reject him. And so it would turn to the Gentiles and that this Passover meal would turn into a communion meal. And then he says, but woe to the man whom he has betrayed. Woe to Judas who betrayed him. In fact, Jesus says it would be better for him if he had never been born. And that's pretty heavy that it's possible that it would be better for someone to never have been born. And Judas falls into that category. And we did a study on Judas, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, in case you're interested. I don't want to go all into it now. But verse 23, then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. In another place, it says that they one by one went, is it me? And I think there's something healthy about being open and just saying, Lord, is it me? I, I, I don't want to do this thing. This is that heart of wanting to do what God wants you to do. And it's very powerful. Now, three things in closing. Number one, communion is a serious and important event. Don't take it if you are not a Christian and don't take it if you're not right with God. Now, make things right. That's the application here. But if you're not going to make it right, if you're like, look, I'm going on this vacation, I'm going to go live it up. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Hopefully you'll be able to repent after the vacation. But don't take communion. Number two, communion speaks of a relationship we have with Christ and with each other. And I love that. And I do pray often that we would get to know one another better, that we would be there for one another, that we would help to bear one another's burdens. I, I pray that God would knit our hearts together in, in oneness. I think it's very powerful. And we take communion together as a sign of us being the children of God. And we're supposed to treat other believers differently than we treat people in the world. And we're supposed to be good to them. 
Number three, communion is an event we can often do to make sure we are right with Christ. So don't, don't miss communion for years on end. Now we do it on Wednesday night. We do it periodically on Sunday morning as we're doing it today. And I shouldn't say periodically. We do it rarely on Sunday morning as we're doing it today. But we do want to make it available to you. And um, there's no reason why at a home fellowship, one of our, our uh, connect groups, that you can't take communion. You don't need a, a pastor someone hold the office of a pastor to be able to give communion. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't lead your family in communion at certain points in times where you can just get some stuff together and say to your family, we're going to remember what Christ has done here for us. We're going to examine and make ourselves right. Take communion on a regular basis. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to gather here and to search your word and to find out more about communion. And we pray, Lord, that we would indeed get communion right. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.